Hello and welcome to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Uh, my name is Gabriel White. I'm here with Danny Sepernich and Scott Powers. And today we are going to be discussing the concept of attorney fees, which sounds uh, really weird. Not so much the concept, just how they work, why attorneys cost as much as they do, and all of the different ways in which attorneys get paid. And uh, what that really means is we're going to talk about all the different ways that uh, attorney student loan companies get paid, at least for the first 20 years of our lives. So, um, Powers, you have the outline there. You have the floor. You want to just jump in? What do you I think, I think Danny first? technically has the outline, but right, I think well, we want to go into the background, right? What do you want to talk about in the background? Go, well, ahead, go ahead. Give it. Give us a, an overview. Well, when, when people think about attorneys, they, they know generally of two ways they, they get paid, right? You either pay them by the hour. You know, every hour the attorney works, he gets paid. And it's usually some you know, significant amount of money. Or in the alternative, you have the guy on the side of the bus who is oh my goodness <laughs> doing work so much bias on oh. a contingency basis and wow. he's getting a percentage of whatever the ultimate collection is wow let me ask you a question powers could you afford to hire yourself uh no i i've in, i've thought about that before actually yes yes in, i think i could in time <laughs> Presuming to it, do more than just to handle a parking ticket. Okay, I was going to say, are, are we just talking about <laughs> sending a demand letter and hopefully getting some kind of collection as a result of, or action as a result of the demand letter? Um, you know, it, it depends. You know, I think a, a normal individual pays insurance precisely for the proposition that in the event that something goes horribly wrong and I get sued, I have... I mean, that's what that's what insurance that's is, true. right? It's legal. It's legal fees. So you're basically pointing out that you're a shill for the insurance company... And that's why your fees are, are affordable is because they, they have you change. Well, no, no, no. To I'm, I'm saying the, your typical legal consumer is, is one of several types. And one of them is going to be someone who is insured as a result of, of having insurance, whether it be through you know, property insurance or your car insurance. And that ins- now, the other, the other side is, is a business. And a business, when they right. get into big... Tr- I mean, I'm not going to individually get into some big multi-million dollar contract for the construction of something and then have it go horribly wrong and face you know, six, seven figures worth of liability for it. But a, co- a company does. And so a company is either self-insured or they'll take, you know, they, they, they're big boys and they've got enough money in their pockets to take care of the issue or they've got an insurance policy. So but again, the- you know, attorney's fees uh, can be paid in one of two ways. And when you're an individual and you've been injured, I think that, you know, it gets us back to why a contingency fee is what it is because you can't. Right. You can't afford to just handle something that big and catastrophic that's happened to you where you're looking to collect it because your insurance company doesn't care. Right? Especially when you've especially if you've just been in an accident and now you have lost your job or can't work or have to be in the hospital for a long period of time. Correct. Now, All right. now uh, before we go too much further down these roads because we're kind of getting into the analysis behind, you know, hourly fees and, and Sure and contingency fees, but there are other, there are other alternative fees uh, that sometimes exist, right? Right, so one of them is a flat fee where I think that applies a lot in uh, wills and estates type work or setting up um, relatively simple business entities where there's a flat fee that 
the lawyer charges for doing a defined set of tasks. Um, I've seen not to exceed amounts where you do an hourly uh, rate, but early on in the case, you identify an amount that you won't exceed for doing, again, like an identified So like a capped set. fee? Mm-hmm, a capped fee, yeah. Um, I've seen criminal... I would never criminal agree to lawyer a capped fee. Would you ever agree to a Vegas? Would you ever agree to a capped fee? You know, so like, there's no bottom, but there's a ceiling. The problem you run into always because that seems like unfair to the lawyer. Well, I think it it is unfair to a degree to the lawyer, but again, you know, we're all free to contract how we like. The problem with the lawyer is you're you're providing a custom good, but you're also providing a heavily regulated custom good where a lawyer can't bail. On the provision, right? You're, you you agreed to pay the pain the assisting chapel, and you end up finding out that it's much much higher than you thought. Of and, course you can you, bail. And and so you well. You've bailed. Of course you have. You've withdrawn from a case because a client stopped begging. You can you. bail in in some situation, but but it's regulated, right? Sure. So if you've got a trial date, and you've got other stuff, I mean, certainly you can you can. They're fairly limited. They're fairly limited but, but circumstances they where you can't they where you exist. can't bail, but. They're really limited, right? Yeah. That's my point, though. I mean, they do exist, and so sure. know, agreeing to that is hard, but it is a custom industry, so everything you're doing is, is a custom product, and it's hard to determine at the outset what it's going to cost, particularly in litigation. You know, it's easier to say, yeah, I can draft my typical 12-page will for X number of dollars and make a profit on it and make, you know, feed my kids. It's harder to say, yeah, okay, well, you got sued by this guy, oh, I can defend you for X amount of dollars. And then you find out that there are 200,000 documents that relate to this, and they're asking for multi-million dollars, and you've agreed to do it for five grand. Now, my understanding, Danny, I don't know if you've seen this, but my understanding is there's a lot of insurers now, and again, this is a world that I've put in gleefully in my past, but there are a lot of insurers now that are asking their counsel to meaning their panel counsel, the lawyers they hire to represent their insureds to take kind of bulk cases on, bulk sets of cases on flat fee basis. I know of, of one uh, insurer who does that regularly. I, I know Allstate does that, where they say, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of cases in a bid for how much you're going to get paid for each one and then you're going to have to take every single one we send you. I know Fireman's Fund used to do that. That's crazy. They went through several counsel because people would get involved with them and think, oh, I'm going to get, you know, a hundred cases a year and I'll make it. I love this because attorneys, they always think, the quality of the work is going to be horrible. But they think, they always think we'll make it up on volume. Which is the most hilarious phrase I think I ever hear a lawyer utter. Like, oh, the, the rates are low, but we make it up on volume. And, wow. um, I mean, that only works if you assume a static cost structure and, a, and, and that you're revenue positive to begin with, right? I mean, if you're losing money on each one of these, you make up your bankruptcy on volume. Right. I I can I, can, I know of one attorney I, I, who left the big firm uh-huh. because he wanted to do um, these mass contracts, mm-hmm. and he couldn't he couldn't handle the it financially at the larger firm with the overhead component, and so the only way he could do it 
was to do it in a very small, either a solo or a small firm situation. And, um, you know, and it was all, I, it was all state contracts. I don't think that's any, I don't think it was confidential that that's what it was. Um, and he just couldn't do it if he had to cover his share of the overhead at the larger firm. Well, I think that goes uh, kind of part and parcel with a topic that, well, a similar situation where we've been seeing with a lot of insurance attorneys going and hanging up a shingle on their own, right, as, as the counsel for yeah. whatever the insurance company is. And they take all their, and presumably they have a salary, and they take whatever the, you know, whatever cases the insurance company has. But I was talking to one, and I will not name who. You strange, odd people. I need you to... I mean, I feel like the stranger in the strange who, land who has says, come down from Mars, and now I need this explained to me. So Why would you ever do that? I, I don't understand it either, but apparently, you know, it's secure work because they're going to be busy. The problem <laughs> well, is yeah, it's they're, they're ridiculously busy. Yeah. And I believe he said his workload, he has less than 100 cases, but it's getting up there. And each one of them, I mean, this includes construction defect cases. And he admitted, he said, I'm probably committing malpractice because I simply don't know my cases. I mean, I think know. about it in terms of Let's this. See. If you have 50 cases, you I cannot. I know Nationwide's got an in-house department like that. I know State Farm now has an in-house department Well, like they're all that. doing it because it's a lot cheaper, um, but the, you run the risk of really prejudicing your insured, right? Farmers has an in-house Pete Peterson shop that's basically what they do right at their mm-hmm. an in-house law firm essentially for farmers right and again the problem you're always going to run into there is you as an insured i don't think that you get the benefit of what you're paying for when you pay your policy premium and now just a brief word from our sponsor most lawyers are never available when you need them at the law offices of gabriel k white we do things differently Other personal injury law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of your calls. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare. At the law offices of Gabriel K. White, each client has the personal cell phone number of their individual attorney. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. It doesn't matter if you call on a weekend, holiday, during the zombie apocalypse, or at the end of the world. At the law offices of Gabriel K. White, we're here when you need us. I I would assume that that's true because you're just... So now are we are we are we creating a, a new wave wherein people? I mean, we're kind of getting off topic here, but we're creating no, a wave it's, I mean, wherein you know, people are going to start goes, to you know start to demand. You know, once they become more educated in the consumer well, for legal services market, they're going to demand cumulus counsel, right? They're going to say, they? "I don't think this guy that you're forcing me to use, despite the language of our policy agreement, is, is not conflicted because he's your he's your shill, and not only that." He's probably overburdened. But, it's not but here's the problem from a, the from, a, from a bad faith standpoint. Will your average consumer ever, your average consumer, okay, not your sophisticated consumer, not your, you know, lawyer. I'm a lawyer already. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, will your, um, I mean, you turn, use the term Kumis Council, which refers to, I believe, a federal case. Um, that that you know the Utah courts have been slowly inching towards that same requirement where when your interests are not the same as the insurance companies you can demand uh, to be represented by separate counsel I believe at your own expense 
Correct. Uh, I'm not an expert in that, but um, you know, is the is the average consumer ever going to be, or even have the capability to become uh, educated about that? And then, if so, like how? I mean, how would they even know? I don't think so. I think that's one of the things about legal representation that a lot of people don't think about. Um, my, my, well, not just who's paying the bill, but I don't think a lot of people realize the vast difference in quality that you can get. Um, I think there might be a conception that one lawyer is the same as the next lawyer, and as long as they have a website, it doesn't really matter who I call to handle a particular case. And I think for a lot of consumers who are maybe dealing with the with a lawyer for a one-off case, they don't know what questions to ask or even what results to look at or how to gauge whether they're getting competent and quality representation well, or not. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the vast majority of, you know, with the exception of kind of the very high-end insurance policies, I, I have seen one or two that had a, you know, the ability to choose your own counsel, but for the most part, you're kind of stuck with whoever the insurance company assigns you to, and you don't know, as an average consumer, I mean, again, we're not talking about, you know, legal malpractice case, where you've got your insured as a lawyer and has the ability to research this. Um, We're talking about Joe Blow, who's being represented, you know, uh, because he... He got in an accident that killed a bunch of people in Sardine Canyon. Yeah, to, and now, and now he's example. facing, you know, like yeah. significant and somebody, policy overages. And, and, you know, and when they don't settle it, they lean over and say, well, now I guess you better go sell your house. I'm sorry about this, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Declared bankruptcy. Yeah. We tried it and it didn't work well for you. So yeah. We'll see you later. So, um, I mean, how do you fix that? What What... I mean, I guess the answer is is extension of 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 the bad faith laws, but well, I think a lot of you know if you were to talk to some of these guys that that do that kind of stuff, they say, well, a the the quality of representation is is just fine, which as we've already talked about may not be the case. Uh, but number two, and it's hard um, to judge. I, I think that they would also say, and to the extent that we do screw up or some analysis is you know wrong then they do have the ability to come back after them and enforce the provisions of the policy. And there are draconian, um, not only state laws, but also uh, cases that the tag insurers and, and uh, I think to a lesser degree, the attorneys, when they, when they mess things up. You're talking, Cam- about, bad, State Farm, you're talking about bad, bad yeah, faith? Yeah, uh, it gives you the yeah, right but the, to, the to standard for, I mean, for bad faith... You know, we've always mused about whether uh, talking, and when I say we, talking with other attorneys who've dabbled or, or have worked in, you know, I guess I've had the opportunity to work with or talk with some of the kind of cutting edge bad faith attorneys, although I by no means consider myself in that group. But, you know, talking with them, the question has been, you know, if. You know, insurance defense lawyer, for example, thinks it's necessary to go take this deposition of this person uh, in person in, you know, New York or wherever. And insurance company says, no, you will do it by phone or no, we don't think that's necessary or, or 
we're not going to let you s summarize your own medical records. We're going to require you to use our own service Send it that we use. Yeah, mm -hmm. that we use. And so you don't get a chance to review them. I mean, do limitations on your ability as the, um, as the attorney, the insurance attorney, could those constitute a basis for a bad faith claim? And, and the, the, the follow-up question, how would the insured ever know? Like, how would they ever learn that the reason we lost the case was because the attorney didn't know the medical records, and the reason he didn't know the medical records is because he'd never read them before, and the reason he'd never read them before is because the insured, he had only seen a summary prepared by somebody out of state. Like, that's something you only learn when once you're deep, deep, deep into discovery and you've got the billing records and say, wait a minute, you know, at deposition, this looks like it was summary. Did you ever actually read these records? No. Why not? Mm. Like, how would you ever learn that? Well, you know, we've, we've got an issue at our firm wherein, you know, policies like that are have to be vetted by, you know, the board of directors. Yeah, there, I know there's some pushback from some of the Because firms. we're worried about that very yeah. situation. And the, basically having the terms of, of your client pigeonhole you into a, a situation where, now, or not pigeonhole, but, you know, paint you into a corner where now you have no choice but to commit malpractice or, or, or do a bunch of free work that they're not going to pay you for. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's so many... Gosh, there's so many pitfalls. It always surprises me that there's not more claims or there's not more malpractice because, you know, seeing what I've seen, you know, the, the insurance companies, for example, that use the third party, I don't know if you guys have dealt with any of your insurers that will flirt. It seems like almost every insurance company at some point has flirted with the independent claim or independent bill review companies that you know, basically sell their services by saying, oh yeah, we will reduce your legal costs by 20% if you let us be the ones to review the bills from the attorneys. And the response is to like go through and just make, no matter what the bill says, to yeah, this is reduce. administrative. Yeah, they would, or they would say, uh, my favorite one we used to get um, from one of our insurers was they would always mark if you include signed pleading or signed motion in your description, like you would have, you know, drafted this, drafted right. that, and then signed a motion, you would get dinged. And they would say, well, we're not paying for, you know, X percentage of this because signing the motion is a paralegal duty. Ha! And we would That's say... Great. That we would say, you know, under Utah law, that's illegal. Can't Paralegals can't right. sign pleadings. And you would get into battles. And, you know, I think, you know, my former firm, we thankfully won most of those battles because we had made the decision that our billing person was just going to fight through their appeals process. Every time. Every single time. But, like, the increase in cost and energy involved in doing that... Um, I don't know. I, it, it, unless eventually your your rates increase or your rate increases are improved, I don't I don't know what the isn't that impetus more, is for continuing it, to do that work. Isn't that more of a? It's just a. I don't know. A, 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 it's a screw it, you. It, it's a result. Well, no, it comes as a result of you know this day and age. Everybody's hustling. 
And and is it is it the can we fault the insurance companies for looking at their bottom line and wanting to be even more competitive and finding a way to save money? Scott, one of the one of the cardinal rules of this podcast is we can always fault the insurance company. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the issue, we can always fault the insurance companies. So do we think this is a product of traditional hourly billing? That's how we started talking about this, but I'm not sure that it is. I think no. you'd face the same issues regardless of how you structured your billing. No, I mean I you don't I, I don't I think this is a is a factor of competitiveness within the insurance industry. I mean I think it's these issues I think may I've you know corporate clients general. corporate clients you don't um, and shack you don't get I mean you you write a you write a 20 page a status update for a corporate client and your ass is going to get fired I mean they don't want some long description of right I mean, it's correct. They they want me. They want general counsel wants to call me, have me explain to them in ten minutes what's going on in the case. They are going to make a decision. They're going to note it down in their notes, and then that's it, right? Um, So depends on the size of the decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe they get. But if you're dealing directly with general counsel for the company, maybe they get the board, or maybe get the CEO involved if it's too big. But usually the buck stops. My experience, even dealing with, you know, a, a multi, you know, international, had one case with an international engineering company, uh, does business in, you know, like 20 or 30 countries. And we were dealing directly with the, with the general counsel. And the buck seemed to stop directly with him. I mean, I'm sure he made reports up the chain where he would have something that would fill out either to the board or the CEO, but he was the highest decision maker we ever had. No, I'm saying, to. all I'm saying is that, you know, to the extent that it's a big decision, a lot of times you have to paper the file with a okay, you know, similar analysis. And again, that, that's presuming that the big decision also comes along with it with, you know, it's pregnant with issues, you might say. I guess. All right. So, pros and cons of, so is the hourly rate the better way to go, or, or is contingency? I mean, I, mean, it all, it's all I think it all, I think, yeah, I think it all depends. I mean, it, you know, if you can afford the hourly rate in a lot of situations, it was, I mean, that's what I tell some of my contingency clients is I'm like, look, yep, you're totally right. Like, if, if you could afford to pay my hourly rate, um, it might be better for you to do that than to go with a contingency because if we resolve this fast, and, yeah. you know, fast, then I may wind up, you know, making more money with it. But the reality is, A, you can't, and B, <laughs> and B, so otherwise you'd be left without representation, and B, the reason why sometimes I make a windfall on the contingencies is because sometimes you have to eat it and eat it hard because you lose the case, it doesn't settle, and you just, I mean, you know, we just got done with a, you know, three-week medical malpractice trial, which for the record I think was grossly wrongly decided by the jury, but whatever, I guess we'll see on appeal. But, so you go, it's going to be appealed? Um, I am not. I was retained by the firm to handle the trial, 
And so I am not really involved in the appellate business. I, long way of saying I don't know. You're not going to be involved going forward. Yeah, and involving me in an appeal is almost malpractice because I, I, I don't do appeals. I don't like them. I hate them. So I, I'm not really involved in that. But Appeals can be fun, Gabe. No, no, they cannot. I, I suppose the part at the very end where you get up, get up in court and argue, much like you would if you were at trial, it could be fun. But you the part like that's the like, civil the civil rules on steroids. Everything's like three times as more. Yeah, where it's like everybody's cool. really concerned about the the color of the <laughs> the briefs. I got, I remember in my my writing some. I can't remember if it was a appellate advocacy class or. I write, trying to write a brief for some appellate team or something in law school, I got dinged for the color of the of the paper that I put on the outside, and you that was that up, right at that moment I knew this is not for me. Like none of this matters, and I'm out. So, is there any change that needs to be affected in fee land? Well, my question was, do we think that the kind of dichotomy between either traditional hourly rates or a contingency fee, does it leave people who have a relatively low dollar, but not extremely easy or simple case, high and dry? Because they might not be able to afford the, the traditional hour billable rate, but it's not going to be worth it for somebody to take that case on a contingency fee because the hours that it will require exceed any amount you might get paid out. Where I mean, that's with small claims. Yeah, well, right? I mean, that's I mean, why you have the ability bigger, to rep your cent. You're, so you're talking somebody, somebody with a $50,000 claims, Exactly, claim. that isn't motion to dismiss or maybe even summary judgment material and not likely to settle. So I you mean, have to get all the way through discovery. There, there, are methods, there are methods for dealing with that. I can see what you're saying is, is you're saying, what about the case that fits in the gap? Now... I think the gap is getting the, that gap that you're talking about is getting smaller because you've got you know provisions means. that horrible provisions that are poorly drafted that allow arbitration of some and I'm talking about three twenty one arbitrations, oh. i.e. the make let's make it impossible for the insurance company no matter how badly they act to commit malpractice or to to commit bad faith so therefore they will never settle for the policy limits, uh, provision. Um, because they can't ever be hit for more than the limits on the policy. Um, in a three, two, one. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, it, it basically, I had this conversation the other day with counsel. I'm like, look, my client's got like $18,000 in medical bills. I, I'm sure you want to argue that some of this relates to a car accident she had in 2006, but doesn't but either it doesn't or it's an exacerbation and you're gonna we're gonna get those and you, you gotta assign something so and my client's got a UIM so it, unless we max we've got to max it out so why not just pay it it's like that never will because they'd rather just take their chance and then if you aren't well, happy you can go de novo so coming full circle maybe these in-house churner mills for the insurance companies, maybe that's better because these guys have a powerful incentive to instead of churn a file to make to, to get the volume out of it, right? To just churn the three, two, one arbitration. These people that are just handling whatever cases come in because they're on salary have an incentive to say, you know what, let's settle this one no. because it's not worth it. See, it wasn't. It's not the. It wasn't get it the, off the plate. It wasn't the lawyer with the the 
incentive to continue to, to it's the insurance company because they because they know they cannot be hit for yeah but ultimately they're still so going why to not send try it off. It? they're still going to send it off to have a lawyer handle it right and ultimately that lawyer is going to be providing some kind of recommendation or analysis as to the claims that are being raised and maybe yeah. like like I said if, if you so, get one of these people and again I'm not going to name any of them but if they're totally overburdened and they see something like this come in with 18 grand in meds and a 50k policy limit, or even a 25k policy limit, they're going to say not worth it. Maybe get yeah, it but, off my plate. But you're assuming that they have the because those guys the still power. Have, yeah, those guys no, still total... have adjusters. Oh I mean, yeah, I know. St- and the adjusters have even, a lot more power. Over which them. that surprised me because if if you bring a bunch of lawyers in house as your legal team, why do you still need adjusters to look over their shoulders? If why couldn't you just have the attorneys? Do the adjusting and be the lawyer handling the case. I mean, if we're going to dissolve the distinction between, you know, the fiction that this person really represents the insured completely by making you an employee of the insurance company, like, just make them the adjuster too. I don't know the answer to that. But to get back to your question, Danny, like that gap, you know, I think they're, they're... are potential solutions to it. Um, I, I think that... Well, and to be fair, I've had cases where I'm surprised that the other side took the case on a contingency fee because I just don't see how it's going to pay out. Well, and, and um, having taken over, I mean, I can tell you, you'd be surprised that if, a, if an attorney is willing to like do the minimum amount of work absolutely required... I'm supposed. I, I suppose they could get away with, you know, with with on a thirty thousand dollar case, you know, with maximum damages, are never going to get above that. Doing a contingency if they're just gonna, you know, they're not going to depose anybody. They're not going to do anything. They're just going to do their minimum disclosures, have their paralegal do it. I mean, that's the other thing that happens is that you've got the attorney doing the case, but, you know, you go to the law firm and you notice there are two attorneys and 18 paralegals that work there. And you're like, hmm. You know, I mean, I've talked to lawyers that have, have you know, 200 cases, and I'm like, how do they handle them all? And, you know, inevitably it comes out that, well, we rely maybe a little more than you might expect on the paralegals. Right. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Little UPL, maybe there. Little UPL going on. Yeah, unauthorized practice of law for those of you who aren't legal junkies. But um, Powers, before we got started, you said you had some beef with contingency fees. What, what, what was this beef? Oh, no, there's no beef. Is there a beef? No. No beef? Okay. No, I think it's the only way to handle a lot of these claims that don't have, you know, well, people can't afford it. We were just discussing why certain things exist and why they don't exist, and you were you were concerned that I, I wasn't that full proponent of your, your alternative lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> the one where I'm basically a venture capitalist instead of a lawyer? 
yes. Investing in cases. Investing in cases. That's a subject we need to talk about in the future. Oh my gosh. Which you hate for some reason. I hate it so much. I don't know why. It's a bad idea. But But, we can address that later. But having having venture capital invest in law law firms. They're already they're already investing in they're they're already investing in individual cases. Like that's happening in the United States and it's totally legal. Really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Litigation funding? Are you serious? I you can I get know? it on a small scale here in Salt Lake. Warren Driggs <laughs> has two or three different companies that fund, that will lend out on PI cases. Wow. But you, those you're talking $20,000, $30,000, dollars loans. There are companies now, hedge funds, that are lending out millions and millions and millions of dollars on these disputes, you know, patent disputes between massive, massive companies, and they're basically, you know, betting on a particular outcome. Wow, that's that's definitely something to reserve for another time because I don't know that that's a good idea. Well, we can agree to disagree on that. <laughs> but. Thank you once again for listening in to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Uh, we hope you'll continue to do so. Again, my name is Gabriel White. Uh, next up we will have an episode where i get the privilege to interview an attorney uh, who is also a legislator and talk to him about the difficulties of representing your clients and your constituents at the same time so tune in for that again uh, here on the trial lawyer podcast